Good morning. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And each and every week, we are here to do our darndest to shine a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. We don't want to focus on the gossip, all the negative stuff in the media. We're only going to give you the good. That's our Christmas gift to you as we ramp up to Christmas here. And we do want to make one very important announcement right off the bat. So you've been enjoying us for about, what, a year and a half now at... Uh, 11 a.m. Pacific or 2 p.m. Eastern every Friday here on BYU Radio. Mm -hmm. Well, you're still going to be able to enjoy us, but now you're going to enjoy us on Saturdays at, let me make sure I do the math here correct, uh, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Good on-the-fly math. It's 4 o'clock local Utah time. Right. For all those Utahns that are listening. And also for those that enjoy the podcast, we will still be putting it out Friday mornings. And so if you want to hear what kind of movies, uh, movie reviews that you want to catch before the weekend hits, you can still download that at the normal time. You can trust us to make sure that you're going to see the right movie and you're not wasting your money. We have well, such you, movie reviews today coming can, up a little bit. You can trust me. I mean, I can't speak for Cole. But sometimes but. <laughs> we agree and that's when you know – that you can trust us. That's right. And we have, yeah, like you said, we've got three different movies to review coming up here in a little bit. But as we are wont to do each week, we give you the very best in entertainment news. Now, first of all, we mentioned last week that Kevin Hart was in as the host and then like two days later he was out as the host. And now while they're trying to scramble to find a last-minute replacement for Kevin Hart – and nobody really wants to step in to uh, take that job on. They're toying with the idea of maybe we just don't have a host. Maybe we just have like multiple celebrity presenters. Uh, As they always do. Right. But this would be like the, the, for the uh, Emmys last year, I believe they did like a big musical number that featured a bunch of different celebrities. But I don't think that there was one host. So they're thinking maybe we could do that. Well, there were two. In the, they had the Weekend Update guys from SNL hosting the Yes. Animes. My opinion, not a good job. Mm. So oh, Michael Che and... Michael Che and Colin Jost were the hosts right. of the Emmys. They did have that sort of funny musical number. Not the best Emmys I've ever seen, I have to say. My dream scenario for all of this is that they just send us a press release with all the winners... And I don't have to watch three hours oh, of musical on. numbers and bad jokes. Awesome. Now, you know, there was a time when the Academy Awards would be done and over in 15 minutes. Like, they, it was just like this one big line. Like, everybody line up, grab your award. That's how they did it. 15 Wasn't that minutes. like in the 30s, though? Yeah. And then they the realized the golden age of Hollywood. The golden age of Hollywood. They could televise and commercialize it. The same thing happened. I mean, I know it's... Sports is a little bit outside the screens, but it's still on the screen. The NFL draft used to be a very simple process, and then they realized people would watch that. And then it turned into a three-day primetime event with commercials and other things. Yeah, but nobody likes the Oscars anymore. I do. I like the Oscars. Really? So. Yes, I do. Well, I wouldn't complain if Billy uh, Crystal came back and hosted so I could watch him do his little song and dance number. But that's probably not going to happen because that – People would probably complain more about Billy Crystal than they would about not having a host. Hmm. You're just a nostalgic kind of guy. I am. There's nothing wrong with that. So that's one bit of news. And I guess there are a bunch of different 
trailers that have hit the internet? Yeah, we got to catch you up because last week, about an hour before we went on the air, there was a new Avengers 4 trailer (gasps) that we neglected to tell you all about. We're sorry. We should have caught that. So did you watch it, Cole? I know you're not big into watching trailers for movies that you're going to see. But I kind of know what I'm going to get out of a Marvel trailer, so I do watch these. All right. I watched it, and it was exactly what I thought I would see. Pretty bleak, (laughs) if you ask me. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mickey? Yeah, uh, I was not surprised, but a little, a little sad. Hmm. Captain America shaved his beard. I think that's the right. saddest thing that's in it. I have Let... a feeling it will all work out somehow. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> all those favorite characters of yours that you saw in the previous one that you know may or may not have lived, they'll be back. I mean, they all have movies that are coming out that are you know years out, so they're going to be just fine. But anyway, speaking of that trailer, so in the trailer, Iron Man is in space. He's like, you know, half a day away from dying. He's sending one last message to uh, Pepper Potts. Pepper Potts, you're my only hope. Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) Nice plug for Star Wars there. And apparently NASA has watched the trailer and they tweeted the following message. Hey, Marvel, we heard about Tony Stark. As we know, the first thing you should do is listen in mission control for Avengers, we have a problem, as opposed to Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) But if he can't communicate, then we recommend ground teams use all resources to scan the skies for your missing man. And then one astute uh, Twitter user zoomed in, if you will. Yeah, zoomed in on all the nameplates on the desks. And if you zoom in really close, one of them says Thor, and there's like a little mini toy hammer next to it. Aww. So that was clever. Thanks, NASA. Thanks for the advice. Any other trailers we ought to be concerned about or excited for? This Today, I think, it might have been today, we saw the trailer for, it's a teaser, really, for the Downton Abbey movie that's coming out. And that song was... Featured. <laughs> you know, if you want to have a fun time, Google or look up on YouTube the crossover of the Downton Abbey theme and the X Files theme, and they'll play them together and they <laughs> and meld the perfectly. It's the same theme, basically. Funny. Could you imagine Downton Abbey as a uh, X Files type of series? I mean, we're already getting a movie, so I don't think there's anything too far-fetched. The problem with that is, like, if a servant downstairs disappeared mysteriously, they probably wouldn't even notice the people upstairs. That's true. What happened to Jeeves? (laughs) Jeeves? What are you talking about? Jeeves? Have you ever seen Downton Abbey? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Jeff, have you? you? Of course, I've watched every episode, (laughs) but they call him by – they only know him by their last names – like, uh, even when that other servant marries into the family. <laughs> like, can you name still... a character from Downton Abbey, Jeff? You keep stalling. It's and... been a while. No, there's there's Cousin Matthew. Okay. Dan Stevens. There's Hugh Bonneville. Um, there's... Lord Grantham? Yes. Now, the the servant, that or the their cabbie or chauffeur, marries into the family, and then his wife dies. So, Spoilers. Like, Sorry if you haven't seen Downton they, Abbey. They still, wow. they still don't. Now call he really him. has to yeah. prove that he's seen it. They, it takes them like three seasons for them to call him by his first name, as opposed to just calling him by his last name. Bronson. Yeah, I know his first name is Tom. Mm-hmm. So how dare you accuse me of not knowing my Downton Abbey? <laughs> I apologize. It's been a while since Downton Abbey. Yeah. 
So speaking of movies that are either out or coming, coming out, out. So we have another announcement. We're a little <gasps> farther away from a trailer, but Pixar has told us what their new movie is going to be kind of about. It is going to star Tom Holland, Chris Pratt, Octavia Spencer, and Julia Louise-Dreyfus. So basically the Avengers and, um, and Julia Louise-Dreyfus from Seinfeld. <laughs> Yeah. And it is going to be about a fantasy world introducing two teenager teenage elf brothers, which would be Chris Pratt and Tom Holland, okay. who embark on an extraordinary quest to discover if there is still a little magic left out there in the world. Does it have anything to do with Christmas or are they just regular elves, everyday run-of-the-mill elves? I think fantasy elves? world yeah, kind like of – Yeah, like Lord of the Rings elves. But no or Christmas? bright elves. When I think Darn. fantasy world, like modern fantasy world now, I can't help but think of that really not great Netflix movie from last year. Um, it's a little disappointing because there has not been a great Christmas movie since 2003 when Elf came out, speaking of elves – and I trust Pixar to come out with my new favorite Christmas movie, but they shy away from, like, the major holidays. I know they just did Day of the Dead with Coco, but, uh, you know, I don't watch Day of the Dead movies every Day of the Dead. I think just making a Christmas movie is an endeavor because you kind of lock yourself into only being watched for one month of the year and you have to come out – like The Grinch just had this problem and Nutcracker. You come out in November and then by the time Christmas comes along, people have kind of forgotten about you. You have to put The Grinch on Amazon packages just to remind people that the movie came out. And it's a good point. It's a good point, Cole. It's tough making a Christmas movie. Speaking of onward, let's move onward – with our oh, yeah. show. Onward is the name of the new Pixar movie. The yeah. only announcement we got is that it has a name. <laughs> it's called Onward. That's exciting. Houston, we have a name. Anyway, um, let's start with the biggest movie release. Now, this is an early review. Cole and I were lucky enough to see this back in November. But it comes out on Wednesday. And, Cole, I'm going to let you set up the um, scenario here for us. In a world of Disney reboots and reimaginings and live action interpretations, it was only a matter of time before one of their most classic characters got a new face. And so in this sequel, not reboot, Mary Poppins is returning. That's exciting news. I was a little, I was hoping that you would say it more like, in a world... Where reboots are I mean, I do have a cold. If I'm ever going to get my voice that low, today's the day. It would have been the day. Okay, so what's this movie about, Cole? So Mary Poppins is coming back. The Banks children that we were introduced to in the first one are now old and kind of sad. They had made some financial investments that didn't quite work out, and now they are in danger of losing their jobs. But they – or losing their house even – But they still have kind of a whimsy and free nature that they used to have. Their children, on the other hand, have had to go in the opposite direction. They've had to be very serious and very responsible in order to make sure that the family doesn't fall apart. And Mary Poppins comes back just in time to teach those kids the value of a little bit of fun in all of their uh, ho-hum days. So wait a minute, Cole. This this almost sounds like you liked this movie. I loved Mary Poppins Returns. What did you think, Jeff? Cole. Yeah? I loved this movie, too. Oh, my goodness. What? 
This never, ever happens. I mean, our whole show is basically, it rests on the premise of Cole and I never agree on anything. We both loved it. We both loved Mary Poppins Returns. So let me tell you what I, let me, let me dig a little deeper here. So right from the start, and you used one of the words that I put in my review, you know, right from the start, you're, you get so caught up in the whimsy of the whole spectacle that you don't even care that you start to realize that the film is basically a remake of the original. You start noticing, oh, okay, there's the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious song. There's the I Love to Laugh song. There's the Let's Go Fly a Kite song. There's um, the giant step in time musical number that lasts a little bit too long. Why? I wouldn't agree with that. But speaking of the songs. But all the beats are right there. The songs, they they may not get stuck in your head like the songs from the original film do. But I felt like they were more complex and a few of them are really quite breathtaking. Uh, They are quite a spectacle. And I noticed during the opening credits that Richard Sherman, one of the brothers that wrote the original songs from Mary Poppins, he serves as a music consultant. So that piqued my interest right from the start and made me think, okay, that means they paid him to give them his blessing. Uh, yes. <laughs> so for me, the highlight of the film, uh, it involves Mary Poppins, played by Emily Blunt, Jack, played by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and then the Banks children. And it involves them and a cracked China bowl. They somehow enter this China bowl and kind of like entering a chalk painting. Right. It's here. If the production and costume designs weren't already impressive, here is where they really shine. And it's this scene where you think, okay, these guys are definitely going to get an Academy Award nomination, at least for the production design and the costume design. And then there's that song in the scene, and it's probably my favorite part yeah, of the movie. Yeah, hired Lin-Manuel Miranda to do something, and it's in that kind of – China pot world that he gets to do his Lin-Manuel Miranda rapping Hamilton sounding thing. And don't complain if you're hearing rapping in Mary Poppins because as Lin-Manuel Miranda pointed out, Dick Van Dyke also rapped in the original. It's true, people. Look it up. Okay, I <laughs> so, have a question though. Okay. So we've also got, I'm looking at the cast list, we've got Meryl Streep yes. involved. Yes. Now, That's the I love to laugh scene. Okay. Now, <laughs> this is the only movie she's done this year. Do you think Whoa. she'll get an Oscar nomination no. for this role? No? She's no. not in it enough? No. She's in one scene. I and mean, it's a jokey throwaway kind of. Okay, she like certainly has enough power in Hollywood that I wouldn't put it past her. But I, I, you get the sense that she's simply doing it for fun and nothing else. Or maybe even to support her friend Emily Blunt. They've been in quite a few movies together. That's true. Um, so here's how I would describe the film overall. Practically perfect in every way. And I'm sure I'm not going to be the only reviewer that says Aww. that. How original. Um, now, now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean to say that the film itself is flawless, but it practically perfectly meets your expectations. It's exactly the type of movie that we need right now. So good that you'll want to cry and you just May. Yeah, the feeling that both of us had coming out of it is that it's very serious in everything that it does. It doesn't have to give you a wink and a nudge to everything about the original Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to throw in references that just make you think, oh, 
I'd rather be watching the original Mary Poppins. It's very genuine and sincere in doing everything that it does in this world. Right. And we're going to be talking about Rotten Tomatoes later on in the program. If you were to look at the score on Rotten Tomatoes for Mary Poppins Returns, you might be a little disappointed. I think it's currently at like 77 percent. But don't be deterred by some of the negative reviews because some of these critics need to do – they need to heed Mary Poppins' advice and remember that we're on the brink of an adventure. Don't ask too many questions, (laughs) something that she says in the film. And other critics like uh, one of the film's cameos suggests have forgotten what it's like to be a child. So I'm giving a review on the negative reviews, people. Have we ever done that on the show before? I don't think so. (laughs) But we did. We both enjoyed Mary Poppins. But that comes out next week. There are two movies that come out today that we also went to see. Right. Do you want to talk about Spider-Man Into Into the the Spider-Verse? Wide Web, World Wide Web? Is that what it's called? It is the universe and multiverse that includes all the different Spider-Men from all of time. And we start off with a new Spider-Man, new to some people that only watch movies, Miles Morales, who's been in the comics for quite some time now. Hmm. Miles is just your normal everyday kid that is one day bitten by a radioactive spider and gets spider powers, just like Peter Parker before him. Uh, The wrinkle to this movie is that it's not just Miles' story. As we go through, his his giant moment where he becomes Spider-Man and realizes what he needs to do happens as Kingpin, Wilson Fisk, has a large Hadron Collider-looking thing that blows up the universe and kind of crosses all of the universal streams and brings in Spider-Men from different Spider-Verses. What? So this is crazy. There's quantum theory tells us that for every action, it could go either way and it creates right. a different universe. And so there's a lot of different universes where a lot of different spider people exist. The comics give us a lot of these different spider people. Spider Gwen, Gwen Stacy is in it. A couple different versions of Peter Parker are Wait, in it. Doesn't she die in Spider-Man one of the Spider-Man Noir? Movies? Again, you have to throw everything out. Okay. Of If you only watch the movies, you might be a little bit confused. Okay. In this movie, this is it's a love letter to Spider-Man fans like myself that read comic books and watch television and just love everything that Spider-Man stands for because you get all of these different kind of Spider-Man. Sounds like it's spider people. Though, it's spider right? people. But then there's and like one some of them's weird a pig, pig, right? Mm-hmm. So spider things. Spider ham okay. is his name. <laughs> okay. Wow. I'm with you so far. It's so exciting. And the thing to talk about this movie isn't so much the plot because it is just a superhero movie where – Miles has to overcome controversy and then save the day in the end. But the animation is beautiful and drawn. We've gotten so many – there are so many comic book movies, but none have embraced what a comic book looks like until this movie. Ang Lee's Hulk kind of tried to do it Mm -hmm. all those years ago, and then they just became generic action movies. And now again, we have an actual imaginative look to a comic book movie. So the Spider-Man movies are killing it. Yeah, and this is the third time Spider-Man's universe has appeared in a movie this year. He, Spider-Man himself, wow. Tom Holland's Peter Parker, was in the Avengers movie. Yeah. Venom is making a ton of money, and even though Spider-Man himself wasn't in it, that's a Spider-Man character. And now Into the Spider-Verse is giving us the potential to connect all of these universes in its own kind of fun way without having to have continuity, hmm. but still... Given continuity. I wonder if Batman would do something similar where old Bruce Wayne goes and trains young Bruce Wayne, but you you animate it. 
I mean, it could. Spider-Man has more fun, and in the comic books, there's more to rely on. Batman's Why this exists. Okay. Yeah, Batman is just Batman. Okay. So, are you ready for another superhero movie review? A friend often of Spider-Man, Deadpool. That's right. Now, I've never seen Deadpool 2, but I have Mm. seen Once Upon a Deadpool And I I should say that I was seeing this film with a different set of eyes than most reviewers because most reviewers have seen Deadpool 2. And so to them, this movie just seemed like a huge waste of time. And they kind of felt like it defeated the purpose of having a Deadpool movie anyway. Like you basically take away everything that makes Deadpool unique and, quote, uh, Better than some of the other superheroes. Oh, he's different. Yeah, right. And I'm he's talking edgy, about he's R. Yeah, I'm talking about things like sexual content, explicit violence, and a whole lot of f bombs. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of those things, so I was actually uh, kind of looking forward to this. So in Once Upon a Deadpool, we get a PG-13 cut of Deadpool two, but with some additional scenes filmed with the Princess Bride's Fred Savage. So Deadpool's kidnapped the actor and is using him to represent the childhood innocence that should accompany some more family-friendly fare, right? These scenes are are they're mostly enjoyable. Uh, it would have been nice to have more of them throughout the film. I did read somewhere that they filmed these scenes in one day. And if you've seen the movie, then it's not too surprising that that's true. Um, but I want to say that Fred Savage... Like he did on the underappreciated short-lived sitcom on Fox, The Grinder with Rob Lowe, he shows that he has some real act or uh, real acting chops and some real comic timing in this film. He's a funny guy, and he's got a great sense of humor, and he's to obviously willing to poke fun at himself because not only is he referencing the Princess Bride throughout the film, but Deadpool has recreated the bedroom from The Princess Bride, and it looks pretty much exactly like it. So besides these new scenes, we essentially are paying for, as you described it, Cole, a TV edit of Deadpool Deadpool 2. Oh, and we're also donating $1 of our ticket to Fudge Cancer, a charity that was actually... The name of it was changed to coincide with the... In true censorship of Deadpool fashion. Right. So the plot, basically, it's a revenge tale mixed with the plot of the Terminator films. Deadpool's girlfriend gets killed. Deadpool gets angry, ends up in a mutant prison. Deadpool tries to become a father figure to a young mutant who will grow up to be a real baddie. Cable, a half-cyborg from the future, travels back in time to try and stop the young mutant. And that's really about it in a nutshell. Um, there, there are a bunch of really clever gags involving some very unlucky mutants, we'll just say, as well as one incredibly lucky mutant. <laughs> and I enjoyed the film overall. Uh, however, there are still plenty of moments of strong violence, sexual content, and a whole lot of swear words other than the F word, a bunch of things that I said earlier that I don't enjoy. And the lack of that particular obscenity is uh, predictably it, it becomes a running gag throughout the film. I mean, the goal of this movie is to poke fun at the MPAA more than even right. the Princess Bride or Fred Savage or Deadpool himself. Right. Because it's showing 
this is still not a family friendly movie. It makes a joke that it's that's making it family friendly so that it can get under the R rating, but it's still Deadpool. And they just take out the blood and do the thing the the bare minimum necessary to get under R. So I guess if you had kids that were gonna see Deadpool to uh no matter what, anyway. like they were gonna find some way to see it. Yeah, I guess it would be better for them to see this one than the actual one. And I I I enjoyed it. However, it's still a very strong PG-13. Yes. Well, anyway, we uh, we teased a little bit about Rotten Tomatoes. When we return, we're actually going to be speaking with an expert on Rotten Tomatoes and how it may be hurting movies' box office returns. We're going to be speaking with Ashley Rodriguez. But first, let's infuse the show with a dash of holiday spirit. Well, there are only 11 days till Christmas, which isn't a lot of time to squeeze in all your favorite holiday films. So, in an effort to help you save time, here are five movies you can safely save until next year, or just skip altogether. Number one. Now, I'm probably going to get into trouble with my wife for this one, and it isn't a particularly bad film, but for me, Irving Berlin's White Christmas just doesn't lend itself to repeat viewing. It's cheesy, it seems longer than it is, and is anyone else bothered by the fact that Bing Crosby's love interest in the film, Rosemary Clooney, was 25 years younger than Bing? I guess I've always been kind of a silly schoolgirl, you know the bit, the... the Lady Fair and the Knight on the White Horse. Let me tell you something. It's kind of dangerous putting those knights up on white horses. Likely to slip off you. Creepy. Number two, Scrooged. This dark take on Dickens' A Christmas Carol is just a downer. As much as I love Bill Murray, his laid-back demeanor is best when he's playing an innocent. Like in What About Bob? I've never been on a boat and... I don't think I can handle it. And his sarcasm is best when his character has an arc, like in Groundhog Day. Do you ever have deja vu? Didn't you just ask me that? But Murray's arc here is minimal, if not non-existent. The film is crude, mean-spirited, and unnecessary. We have spent $40 million on a live TV show. You guys have got an ad reading a book in front of a fireplace. I have to kill all of you. Brownie points, however, to Danny Elfman's exceptional score. Number three, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Uh-oh. I'm gonna murder that kid. This film is more of a remake than a sequel. When Home Alone Part 1 became the highest-grossing holiday film of all time, the filmmakers definitely took the if-it-ain't-broke approach when making Part 2. Instead of Chicago, mischievous Kevin is alone in New York. What kind of idiots do you have working here? The finest in New York. Instead of overcoming his fear of a creepy snow salt shoveler, he overcomes his fear of a creepy bird lady. What's this? It's a turtle dove. I have one, you have one. As long as we each have a turtle dove, we'll be friends forever. And instead of crooks Harry and Marv getting maimed by paint cans, Harry and Marv get maimed by paint cans. Now, this doesn't mean as a kid I didn't love the maiming parts. In fact, I would usually fast forward to those paint cans. Come on, let's get them. <laughs> Oops. <sighs> Good times. Number four. Like many of you, I'm always on the lookout for new holiday classics. 
Well, Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas, continues Disney's classic tradition of cashing in on former hits at any cost. Uh, The good news, the entire main cast is back for this straight-to-video sequel-slash-prequel with a few welcome additions like Bernadette Peters and Tim Curry. The bad news, the 70-minute film focuses on Belle's efforts to secure a Christmas tree. Oh, sorry. The music is simply unbearable. If you must love someone, may I suggest you love yourself, just think it through. You'll never leave and you'll find you'll get more dressed. You'll always feel as good as new. The animation is noticeably inferior to the original. Just as an example, when Belle first appears on screen, my daughter said out loud, That's not Belle. And number five, the Star Wars Holiday Special. Now, in all honesty, I've never actually seen this film, other than maybe the first five minutes. But I have heard many of the stories surrounding this 1978 made-for-TV movie that suggest the experience was anything but jolly for those involved. It's Chewie, but where's Han? That's him hanging upside down. A quote from George Lucas sums it up perfectly. If I had the time and a sledgehammer... I would track down every copy of that show and smash it. I can't understand what Chewbacca's doing. So there you have it. My five picks for Christmas movies you should probably avoid. Later on in the show, I'll share my picks for the five slightly obscure Christmas movies you won't want to miss. plan to produce box office flops, so why do some of the biggest summer releases earn way less than they're expected to? Is it the acting? The marketing? The writing? Maybe. But maybe the site Rotten Tomatoes is to blame, hmm? Here to talk to us today is Ashley Rodriguez, a reporter that covers media and marketing for Quartz, a digitally native news outlet for business people in the new global economy. Ashley, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about this because uh, there was a, a time and place where the mighty thumbs up or thumbs down of Siskel and Ebert carried a lot of clout. People really relied on those movie ratings. And, you know, neither of those critics are, are with us anymore. But the the website Rotten Tomatoes is... And I'm curious. I'm curious to know a little bit more about Rotten Tomatoes. I, I use it frequently, but uh, if you could do us a favor, just tell us a little bit about what Rotten Tomatoes is, and uh, why people go there to to decide whether or not they should be seeing a certain movie. Sure. Well, Rotten Tomatoes is a movie review site that aggregates reviews from different film critics. So each critic will assign a film either a rotten or a fresh tomato. Um, based on Rotten Tomatoes, what they call a tomato reader. And essentially, the overall score is determined by the share of tomatoes that are assigned to each film. So if a movie has a 90% fresh rating, it means that 90% of critics gave the movie a fresh tomato and essentially thought it was a good movie. Now, that could be based on tens of reviews, or it could be based on hundreds of reviews, depending on how many submitted for each film. There's also a separate audience score, and that shows you what the share of just average viewers like you or me thought about the movie and whether they liked it. 
But when you glance at Rotten Tomatoes, what you generally see on the homepage is the critic score. That's what we're looking at, and that's what people are mostly concerned about. So for audiences, it's a really easy way to see whether a film is worth your time, right? You don't have to read through other reviews. But the trouble is that it eliminates some of the nuance that you get from film critics. What they generally do is they'll tell you, you know, a movie may be considered a bad film. It could have poor direction. um, The plot could be lacking. The performance could be underwhelming. But it could still be good fun to watch the theaters. And that's what you kind of lose a little bit when you look at these aggregation sites. Interesting. So, I mean, it it makes it so it's very black or white. You either like the movie or you don't like the movie when in actuality there's a lot more at play and maybe they they don't really think it's a great movie, but it's fun, so they'll give it a, you know, a positive rating. What are some other factors that go into these ratings? Is there can we only rely on the fresh or rotten or is there some other type of score or gauge on the website by which we can judge these movies? Well, there is a way where you can click in. So this is, if you actually click on the title, when you go on the homepage, what you're seeing is the name of the movie, and then you're seeing a score that's next to it. If you actually click into the title of the film, then there's a way that you can just see the scores of top critics. So these are critics that have maybe a little bit more clout. Um, they're here regularly. They, based on um, Rotten Tomatoes, they may maybe have a little bit better judgment. And so you can see just what they're thinking. And you can also look at the audience score, which, as I mentioned, it gives you a sense of just whether average viewers like you or me liked watching it. Okay. So what would you say is the difference between aggregated film reviews and film criticism? I think that what you lose a little bit with the aggregation is you lose um, the nuance that the film critic gives you describing what is good and what's bad about the movie so that you can make your own informed choice as a viewer as to whether or not you want to see it. Um, Aggregation sites just kind of boil it down into a number as to what the overall general audience thinks. The other thing that you kind of lose with film criticism is you may have a film critic that just um, really kind of gets your taste you align really well with their perspective and they're almost an influencer in a way for you. And so you may rely on their reviews a little bit more heavily because they like the same types of movies that you like. You don't really get that, um, that level of detail with aggregation. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Ashley Rodriguez, who is a reporter that covers media and marketing for Quartz. And uh, Ashley, you, you recently wrote an article about how movie studios are complaining that Rotten Tomatoes, uh, it's it's ruining their box office numbers. So do you believe that's true? Well, if we look at the summer box office, and in the U.S., the summer box office we, is defined by a very particular period of time. It starts um, Friday, the first Friday in May, and it runs through Labor Day. And this year, we're down. We've been consistently down about 8%. Um, The last time I checked was a little bit over a week ago, and we were still down about 8% from last year in terms of the overall money that has been brought in from movies. Interesting. So we are seeing a little bit of an impact, and the concern from some of these movie studios is that these movies have gotten bad reviews. We've certainly seen that with Transformers. Um, There's a fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie that was out this year. There have been a lot of movies that just have not gotten good reviews and audiences just haven't shown up. There are other things they could be watching. There are movies on Netflix. You know, there's a, a lot of great television on right now. 
They don't want to spend the money on a movie that's just not great. But the other concern is that, you know, maybe these movies just aren't great to begin with and aren't going to be drawing audiences. I mean, how excited can you really get over a fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie? <laughs> it's not much different than the last four. Exactly. So why do these movie studios keep making these sequels that seemingly nobody wants to see? Are, are they just very risk averse? Why do they keep doing this to themselves? That's exactly it. They're relying on properties that are already established and already have an audience because there is so much other competition from things like TV and streaming services. There are a lot of other places for people to get their entertainment these days besides the cinema, and so they're relying on these already established properties. And now when we talk about these movies doing badly here in the U.S., they may lose money here, but they're making it up abroad. Audiences in China, in particular, love some of these movies. So if we talk about Pirates, Pirates um, brought in about $170 here in the U.S. this summer. On a budget, it cost $230 to make. So it lost money here. But internationally, it bought in about $600 million. Wow. So it made a ton of money. And for the studio, for Disney, that's worth it. Interesting. So... Okay, I, I want to kind of change directions here a little bit. Getting back to critics on on Rotten Tomatoes. So, do you think it's fair that these critics, the the, the same critics that maybe are a little more highbrow and have different tastes than somebody who's a little more lowbrow, do you should they all be reviewing the same movies? So, for instance, uh, should a critic that analyzes a comedy be the same critic that comments on a historical drama? You know, that's a really good question because um, some of these films are just shouldn't be looked at in the same way. You know, a superhero movie is generally not going to be an Oscar contender in the same way that a big, expensive drama might be. So someone who's used to that certain type of film shouldn't be judging the other. But generally, a lot of good film critics will weigh these things with a grain of salt, right? That's, again, why we um, prioritize some of the nuances in film criticism, because they will note that, you know, this is may not be an amazing film as we look at it as a film, but it's still a good movie. Yeah. So you, you do sort of get that level of it there. So it seems like one tactic that comes from movie studios is to just not screen their movie ahead of time for movie critics, maybe because they're confident that it's just going to get trashed by the critics and they're worried at what that negative score might do to their box office numbers. Do you think it is effective for movie studios to withhold their movie from being criticized before it's released? I think there will definitely be a lot of pushback if we actually see that happen because people are so used to seeing reviews, right? About a week before we start seeing all the reviews for a film and it does build up buzz for a movie. So if you're a movie that, if you're a movie studio and you've got a a number of high profile projects coming out and they're getting good reviews, that is going to help you. But in the same, in the same vein, if they bomb, that's really just going to hurt your performance. So if you're in the business of making lowbrow comedies, maybe it doesn't make sense for you to re- to release or screen your films early for critics just so that they can, you know, hammer on it and then nobody goes to see it. Yeah. And it seems like there are certain movies that people are just going to go see regardless of how terrible the reviews are. I think of Suicide Squad. I think of Adam Sandler movies. People are just oh, yeah. going to go see it no matter what the critics say. <laughs> 
Exactly. Well, Netflix says um, Netflix is a great example because all of their recent Adam Sandler comedies have terrible reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But Netflix says that they're some of the most watched movies on the site. So, you know, audiences will watch them if they're there. But the, the, the barrier that that cinemas have or that movie studios have is that they have to get people to pay specifically for this movie. You know, I may just watch it if it's on TV or if it's on Netflix, but to actually shell out eight or nine dollars is a different story. Right. So, you know, speaking of Netflix, they've recently adopted a new rating system, which I'm not a huge fan of. I was a much bigger fan of the star rating system that they had. Uh, Now it's just I think it's you it's recommended for you or it's not recommended for you. Do you mm-hmm. think um, – is there any way that Rotten Tomatoes could change their rating system to make it may- maybe more similar to Netflix? That would be interesting. So the way that Netflix does it, it's very personalized, right? They have all this data based on what you specifically like. So when you gave all those star ratings um, – and when they changed it, so they changed for, for just anyone who's listening and doesn't know, they changed from five-star ratings to a thumbs-up and thumbs-down for each title. Now, those five-star ratings were always based on what they thought you as a viewer would like and not what the general population of Netflix viewers thought of that particular title. But there was some confusion among Netflix members where they thought it was a quality rating – rather than a metric for personalization. So that's why they changed to the thumbs up and thumbs down, just to make that a little bit clearer. So for Rotten Tomatoes to have to do something like that, they would then have to get a sense of what you personally think of each of those films. So it might be a way for them to do it for, you know, people who use Rotten Tomatoes all the time. But I think it would be really challenging in terms of figuring out a score for, like, general viewers. Well, I I have to blame uh, – now I have to blame Netflix for not being able to tell if I'm going to like a movie or not. So <laughs> Netflix is just perpetuating the problem because now I'm just going to Rotten Tomatoes to find out if I'm going to like a certain Netflix show. Uh, anyway, exactly, yeah. how you would have to rely on Netflix, what Netflix thinks you like versus what the general audience likes. Right. Ashley, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to be doing something that's pretty fun, actually. We're going to be talking about films that critics hated that we love, as well as films that critics loved that we hated. This is Screen Cleaning on BYU Radio. This is Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson, and I'm speaking with Ashley Rodriguez, who is a reporter that covers media and marketing for Quartz, a digitally native news outlet for business people in the new global economy. And uh, prior to joining Quartz, she was a reporter for Advertising Age, covering retail and financial service marketers. And before that, she worked for digital creative and marketing agencies and was a freelance journalist. Ashley, thanks again for being on Screen Cleaning. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited, and I, I don't want to offend you in, in case <laughs> I trash a movie that uh, that you love or I uh, love a movie that you don't love. But uh, I thought you and I could each share a movie, first of all, that had a really low Rotten Tomatoes critic score that you actually enjoy. And I'll go ahead and start. And this is actually a recent pick. 
Uh, critics were not kind to the film King Arthur Legend of the Sword. And it actually... Yeah, they it, sure were not. Yeah, and it totally bombed here in, in the States. Uh, but it, So it got a 28% rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. I actually enjoyed this film, but I should say that I'm a huge fan of Guy Ritchie, the director, and his style. He did the Sherlock Holmes films. He uh, recently did The Man from Uncle, which was another fun film. But I really enjoyed it. I enjoy his uh, style of storytelling. I thought it was about 30 minutes too long, and the ending was a little silly for me. But just a, a fun popcorn flick and I wasn't looking for Shakespeare or even something that was true to the source material but I actually enjoyed this film you know I'm a Guy Ritchie fan too but I have to say that I maybe did what movie studios worry about and then I saw all of the bad reviews and was like you know what I have a lot of movies to see this summer I'll just wait until this one comes out on DVD or is on Amazon yeah Um, so I have not seen it yet Um, but I do plan to because I, I mean I liked all the other, you know, Sherlock was, it was a pretty good film for what it was. I, you know, I had a lot of fun. There's a lot of action. So, um, you know, there are, it's one of those movies where I feel like you can still enjoy it, even though it's not great. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what is your pick for the movie that had a really low Rotten Tomato score, but that you loved? So it's funny that you should ask this because I was just talking about this with um, my fiance the other day because it came on television. It's an older movie. It's called Smoke and Aces. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's this really dark comedy with Ray Liotta and Ryan Reynolds and Jeremy Piven. And then there's just a ton of gratuitous violence. It has about a 29% score on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's just one of those movies that's good fun. I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie, but I'll watch it when it comes on. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but you said Ray Liotta's in it. It is, uh, Is Jason Bateman in that one, too? He might be. You know, I can't recall. Hmm. Okay, so Smoke and Aces. Now, also, it sometimes it happens that uh, movies have a very high critic score, and the audience score is very low. And uh, one example, and I this isn't my pick, but one example I thought of was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull had a pretty good critics review, but audiences seemed to really hate it as time went by. I didn't mind it as much. I didn't think it was that different from any of the other Indiana Jones films as, as far as the plausibility of certain action sequences. That's not my pick, but that was just an example. Another, uh, another example, which is my pick, is a film directed by Robert Altman called A Prairie Home Companion. It got an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Pretty high critic score. And this, of course, is based on the Garrison Keillor Prairie Home Companion uh, radio shows that he used to put on. It's got, it's got a great cast. Woody Harrelson, Meryl Streep, um, John C. Riley, Garrison Keillor, of course, is in it, and Tommy Lee Jones. This is one of those films that, and I should say that I haven't really listened to or watched any of the Prairie Home Companion radio shows, uh, but this film just really didn't do anything for me. thought it was kind of boring. It was kind of all over the place. And uh, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan. So this is an example of a film that got great scores from the critics, but not so much from, from me or audiences in general. 
Um, so I have not seen that one. My example is um, one that actually both critics and audiences liked, but I was not into. So I'm a little bit of the dissenter, I guess, in this one. Um, the Avengers, the first Avengers movie. I thought I was going to love it. I was really excited going into it. I remember I went to the midnight showing. It was directed by Joss Whedon, who I absolutely love. And I was really excited about it, but I was just, I think maybe my expectations were too high and I was disappointed walking out of it. I just felt like the plot was kind of um, shallow. And while I did appreciate what he did with the characterization element of it, I felt like, you know, Loki's master plan throughout it all was not very impressive for someone who's supposed to be the god of trickery. Um, wow. So I was pretty disappointed with that one. You are a dissenter. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting because that's a film that I remember seeing and, and very much enjoying. Um, but I remember having a clear thought at the end of that movie. Wow. Where are they going to go from here? Because it was just so huge and scale so epic. Mm -hmm. And I, I haven't enjoyed some of the other Marvel movies as much as the Avengers, because I, I, I feel like they, there's this mentality of we've got to up the ante in every single one of these movies. It's got to be bigger than the previous movie. And I don't agree with that mentality. And I've actually liked some of the smaller Marvel films better, like Ant-Man I was a huge fan of because they they kind of slowed down. They did a smaller story. It wasn't as big or epic. And I really enjoyed that. Plus, I thought it was just flat out funny. But, uh, I loved Captain America Winter Soldier for a similar reason because huh. I thought it was what the Avengers should have been without the egos. Interesting. So it was a smaller level with the exception of Captain America, who's huge, of course. But it was the Falcon, it was the Black Widow, and it was this sort of team-up without all of the huge action that we get out of the Avengers movies because you have so many big characters in that. You know, and I think, I think you bring up a good point here, just in closing. Um, I, you and I seem to have totally different opinions on these Marvel movies, but that is yeah. just fine. And I think that's what a lot of people forget about when they go look at reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. All of these critics' tastes, all of the audience uh, tastes are going to be totally different. And one movie that you love is a movie that I may just hate. And that's okay. So there's there's really something for everybody out there. And if you're if you're willing to spend the time, do a little more research, you may stumble across a movie that you know one man's trash is another man's gold. I, I totally botched what that famous saying, but it really goes to show you there is something for everybody out there. And uh, Ashley Rodriguez, I just want to thank you again for for being on screen cleaning. I had a great time with you, and uh, keep up the good work. And and hopefully we can have you back on the show. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. We'll be back in a moment to do some panning for good. But first... Earlier in the program, I shared my picks for the five Christmas films you should probably avoid. And now here are my picks for the five slightly obscure Christmas films that you'll definitely want to check out. <laughs> See what I did there with the word you'll? Huh? All right, never mind. Number five. While you were sleeping... Now, even though my wife is convinced I don't like this movie, there's no denying its charm and genuine humor. Sandra Bullock plays a lonely, fair-token collector who inherits the family she never had after she saves the life of the man of her dreams before he slips into a coma and is mistaken for his fiancée. Honestly, who doesn't love Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman? I'll see you when I see you. <laughs> 
Though it really should be classified as a romantic comedy, the characters in the film celebrate Christmas early in the film, so it's on the list. Number four, Shrek the Halls. Now, I'm not advocating eliminating how the Grinch stole Christmas from your holiday movie queue, but if you're experiencing Grinch burnout, you'll want to give another Green Grump a chance. This fast and funny TV short is a huge improvement over the feature-length Shrek the Third that preceded it. Many of your favorite characters from the films return to help the not-so-jolly green giant discover the true meaning of Christmas. What would the perfect Christmas be without a Christmas story? <clears throat> Twas the night before Christmas, and all... Number 3. Funny Farm Here's another pick that's not really a Christmas movie. But if It's a Wonderful Life can go almost the entire movie before mentioning the holiday and still be called a Christmas movie, then so can this 1988 Chevy Chase comedy. The plot involves a yuppie New York couple that moves to a seemingly charming town in Vermont only to discover the town is full of curmudgeons, sickos, and psycho mailmen. Is our mailman. The Christmas part comes into play when Chase hires the townsfolk to stage a Norman Rockwell-esque holiday to fool another yuppie couple into taking their home off their hands. This movie is one of Chevy Chase's better films, and it does a great job of capturing the magic of Christmas, even if it's just one big facade. Number two, Arthur Christmas. Not a huge hit in the United States, but then again, not every Christmas classic has been initially like my number one pick, which we'll get to in a minute. Arthur Christmas gives us a glimpse of three generations of Santas and their very different styles. Arthur is the incumbent Santa's son who loves his job answering every piece of his father's fan mail. Dear Gwen, thank you for your letter and brilliant picture. Your request for a pink twinkle bike will be passed on to Santa. But when Santa fails to deliver one child's present... Only cherubic and optimistic Arthur can save Christmas. This clever and heartwarming flick was produced by Ardman Animation, the company behind such not-to-be-missed films as Wallace and Gromit, Chicken Run, and Shaun the Sheep movie. And number one, A Christmas Story. Okay, I promised I was going to stick to the slightly obscure holiday films, but this is hands down my favorite Christmas movie ever. And it must be the favorite of millions of others, too. What other movie do you know of that airs for 24 consecutive hours on television? It's not only a great holiday film. IMO, it's one of the funniest movies ever made. No one who has seen A Christmas Story can look at the word fragile and not think of Mr. Parker's major award. Fragile. It must be Italian. Well, I think that says fragile, honey. And who among us can't identify with little Ralphie's Christmas wish of owning a Red Ryder Carbine Action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing which tells time? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Ho, ho, ho. Maybe for you it was an easy-bake oven or a shiny new bicycle. The point is, few movies capture with such accuracy the magic of realizing your hopes and dreams no matter how trivial they may seem to an adult. So if you haven't watched any of these films this Christmas, you've only got 11 days left, so get cracking. From all of us here at Screen Cleaning, Merry Christmas. Oh, and if you do get that BB gun on the 25th, be careful.
there's good in them there hills. Each and every week, we like to end our show with our panning for good segment. And as you just heard, there's good in them there hills. Because even on Rotten Tomatoes, they can't always get it right. Yeah, even even the critics might not find the, the golden nuggets that we look for. Right. And I want to mention a film that does have currently a rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes. But as a child, this film was very important to me. I watched this film way more than I watched the film on which it was a sequel. Does that make sense? Sure. This is the sequel. I watched the sequel way more than the original. And I'm talking about the 80s film Return to Oz. Okay. This is Dorothy who has returned from Oz and she keeps talking, like ranting and raving about all this stuff that was happening. So her Aunt Em decides to take her to this asylum so where she can get some treatment so she can put all this stuff out of her mind. And she somehow manages to make her way back to Oz. Yet this time, everything is very bleak. All of her friends have been turned to stone. There are these really creepy characters named the Wheelers and this weird witch who has like dozens of different heads that she can just kind of put on one at a time as she so chooses, depending on what her mood is. It is creepy. And I loved it as a kid. It was like the scariest but most delightful thing I could see. Delightful is probably not the right word because I just mentioned that it's very bleak. But (laughs) if you haven't seen it and you have kids that are brave enough, you need to watch it. Because I don't believe it deserves the rotten score that it has on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't either. I I love that movie. Mickey's seen it too. I'll be. I love The Wheelers. Like all you have to do is say the Wheelers and I just get the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, the witch with the heads. That is some scary stuff for kids. She's trying to to get the key uh, so that they can get like this flying dust without waking up the witch. And she wakes up and her eyes go big and she says... Dorothy Gale, and that will forever be burned in my mind. (laughs) Speaking of being burned in your mind, please continue to listen to our show. It's on every Friday and will be on Saturdays starting next week at 2 p.m. No, 2 p.m. Pacific. No, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. That's next week here on Screen Cleaning. 